Hi, as we continue our series on Joseph, could you please turn with me to uh, the book of Genesis? We'll go to chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42, verses 6 through 20. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we just come back to you right now. Um, there's so many things as our deacon prayed before that are going on in our lives. But right now, what we desire, our heart's desire, is to sit at your feet, is to listen to you speak. We know that you speak through your word. We pray, God, that you would open our eyes and our ears so that we may see and hear, that we may see and hear you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we continue on the book of Genesis, we're going back into Joseph's life. I ended it by saying how the last chapter was kind of like a, a curtain closing right before the intermission. And now it opens back up. And as it opens back up, it's another scene in this play, in this uh, movie. A lot of people have seen a lot of variations of the Joseph story told by, I don't know, Disney or some other cartoon that you may have watched. And I have this to say about that. It's good that you watched it, uh, but... Like it is with every other movie, I believe, the book is always better. The book is always better. And so we're going to go through the book and we're going to look at how Joseph comes back. But not only him, but here in the next scene we see Jacob and his other sons as well. We know that famine hit and it was rough. In fact, uh, the Bible says all the earth the famine was severe in all the earth. The literal word in Hebrew is like all the lands or everything that you could think of was hit with this uh, famine. So when you hear all the earth, it's an expressive kind of statement. Not literally the entire earth, but it could have been. Uh, 
but it is an expressive kind of statement. So everywhere that you can think of, everywhere that you think you could possibly go with all the technology that you have now, all the resources are depleted. There's a famine. That's, that's the picture that we see. And then we go into chapter 42, and Jacob learned that there was actually grain for sale in Egypt. And then he goes to his sons, and he says something hilarious. It's like, why are you guys just looking at each other? And the way that it's supposed to be taken, I think, is why are you guys such idiots and just sitting there doing nothing with your life? <laughs> Do something. And I take it to also mean that when people have grown in a very privileged and kind of upscale neighborhood or environment or household, it's hard to do things that you would do as opposed to when you grew up in a rougher neighborhood, rougher times. A lot of us who grew up rougher almost now wear it as badges, saying like, I went through that. And it kind of something that we're, it's kind of something that we're proud of. If you went to and served in the military, there's a boot camp that you go through. And if you wanted to be a doctor, there's you know, a period of seven years that you have to go through, um, sometimes longer, and things of that nature. And then we go through these things in life, and we kind of almost wear it as badges. But let's say you didn't go through boot camp. Let's say you didn't go through the seven years of being an intern or whatever in the medical field. Let's say you didn't do these things. Can you be an effective soldier, doctor? things of that nature. When the time comes and crisis hits, are you prepared and ready? Jacob was actually really well off. And we know that from the previous chapters we've studied. Jacob was well off. And that, that means his children were well off. And so how much hardship did they have to endure? Well, we saw some of the things, but we saw exactly how they acted when some hardships came. For instance, the raping of their sister, how did they deal with it? Would you say it was a wise way they handled it, or is it a way a bratty child would handle it? You know, things of that nature. So we kind of see a picture coming back. In the opening of this curtain, we see that even though Joseph went through so many things, sometimes you go on this long trip and you see, you see the world and you're like, wow, this is amazing. You leave your house, you get your own apartment, or something to that effect, and then after a few years, you come back to your house, and then sometimes you're disappointed. Anybody ever feel that way? You're disappointed because everything's exactly the same, nothing's changed, but you feel like you've changed. But this is kind of similar. The curtain opens, and there's almost nothing that changed. 13 years passed, more because now the famine hit, more than 13 years passed, and it's like they're still spoiled brats and still the same. And then Jacob admonishes his children saying, look, go down to Egypt. Go and buy grain and then we won't die. It's like, why do I have to say the simplest things to you guys? But that's what he says. And here is how our chapter starts. It says, 10 of Joseph's brothers went down but Jacob doesn't send Benjamin. Benjamin, he doesn't let go of, who is Joseph's brother. 
But I like how the narrative plays on these words, Joseph's brothers. Instead of saying Jacob's sons, in verse three it says Joseph's brothers. And Benjamin is also Joseph's brother. So we still see this is kind of centered around Joseph, but Jacob sends his 10 sons minus Benjamin over to Egypt. And this is where Michael read Joseph was governor over the land. And this is how he sold, well, because he was governor, he was able to see and kind of manage all the grain that's going in and out of the land. And Joseph's brothers come down. And we have to see here, this is almost, even with what I said, it's like a parallel of chapter 37. Remember the intro to Joseph's life? This, you can see almost in parallel these sequences coming because at this point, what happens to Joseph in chapter 37? He has this dream. And here in verse 6, we see Joseph's brothers come down and they actually bow themselves before him, before Joseph, with faces to the ground. Joseph, Joseph recognizes his brothers and he speaks roughly to them. And in verse 8, it also says he recognizes. So he, uh, the Bible keeps on talking about recognizing. Joseph recognizes and recognizes and he remembers and recognizes and he tells it over and over again, but the brothers, the brothers do not. And he speaks roughly to them. And then after all this happens, it says in verse nine, he remembers the dreams that he had dreamed. And then he responds this way. So you can kind of see this picture. Uh, he is the governor. He actually sees his brothers come bow down with their faces to the ground. He knows it's his brothers. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. He remembers the dream. And this is how he responds. He goes, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Now, why would Joseph respond in this manner? The chapter before, when we close the curtains, before the intermission, Joseph names his son Manasseh, I've forgotten my father's troubles, my father's household troubles. And yet now we see that when his brothers come bow down, he remembers and he responds, you are spies. But the brothers respond, no, we're honest men. And you kind of see something at play here, this very ironic kind of situation where the brothers are saying we're honest, but Joseph immediately goes up to them and says that you are spies. And what are spies? Spies are dishonest. So he's calling them dishonest. You guys are dishonest. And it was, it was very, very possible that they could have been spies. What nations did at the time, if there were storehouses of grain or storehouses of any kind of good um, metal or anything precious, people would guard it. And so people would come acting like they would be businessmen, we need something from you, and they would stake out that place, see if there's any weaknesses. But you see here, I think there's a bigger kind of play on words that Joseph is doing. As soon as he recognized them, again it says, he recognized them, and he goes, you're dishonest. You're trying to look for weaknesses. You are dishonest. You're trying to look for weaknesses. The brothers don't get it. They go, no, no, no. 
We're, my Lord, we're your servants. We just came to buy food. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And then he goes, no. It is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And this is how they respond again. Um, we're 12 brothers, sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, our youngest is, in, is with our father, and, our, and one more is no more. So he's saying, we're honest men. And then you know how it is when someone is not honest with you? What do they tend to do? In my experience, when someone's not honest, they tend to continue to add to their story. So now you see this kind of thing. So it's, even Joseph's advisors probably listening to this and like, yeah, yeah, they're a bunch of crooks. Because they're just adding to the story. No, 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 we're all sons of one man. We came from Canaan. There's a younger brother who stayed on with our father. All these details, you're like, why is this even necessary? But they're just telling him detail after detail after detail. And then they end with, but we also had another brother, and he's no longer here. And that, ironically, is Joseph that they're talking about. And Joseph says, no, you're spies. You are dishonest people. And so he gives them this test. Unless you bring your younger brother here, um, I'm gonna, you're going to leave one brother. You're going to bring your younger brother, your spies. Your spies by the life of Pharaoh. So he swears by the life of Pharaoh, meaning I am definitely going to do this. There's no way around it. You can't argue. You can't convince me. Otherwise, this is what's going to happen. And so he puts them this time in jail for three days. And the third day, he takes, he takes them out and he says, I fear God. So do this. He gives them a little kind of, um, a little taste, maybe hopefully a hint. But I fear God, you're honest men. And then so bring your brother to me. And then this is, this is when they started to argue with each other. You would think Joseph put these 10 brothers in the jail so maybe they can come up with a good plan, maybe even say, we fessed up, now we're going to completely be honest with you. But the brothers don't do that. In fact, what they do is they just, they just go, man, this is definitely because we did that to Joseph. Not knowing Joseph is there. Don't you remember the time Joseph was begging and pleading for his life and we didn't even listen to him? And this is definitely because we were so um, evil. And then this is when Reuben comes in. Enter Reuben again. Uh, some, of, some of your favorite characters, for some of you, your favorite character. And Reuben goes, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen, so now there's a reckoning for his blood. Basically, what he is saying is, I told you so. And when someone comes in a very distressful, dire situation, steps into the fray and go, I told you this would happen. Uh, that person is useless. Honestly, that person is, doesn't help at all. But as the eldest brother, you would think, I got this. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to take care of it. But instead, Reuben comes into the, into the fray and goes, I told you this would happen. Now we're all doomed. I was like, all right, thanks a lot, big guy. But this is how Reuben answers. But you see, Joseph is listening. 
And Joseph can understand everything. And they, he, they could, he could hear them fighting. And this is in verse 24. He turned away because obviously, as we also experienced, there was a lot of dust in the air. So he needed to get an air purifier for that little palace that he was in. So once he got the air purifier, he came back and then he took Simeon away from them. So who is Simeon? Simeon is the second. So he decides not to take Reuben, but he takes Simeon and he binds them before their eyes. Simeon and Levi were the two brothers, the second and third, that killed all of Shechem's uh, men, if you remember. And so uh, he, he binds them and then they go away. And Joseph asks and tells them to, you know, his servants, hey, actually, I want you to put back the money that you have and put it in the bag, put it in the sack of rice. So as they're going back, one of the brothers opens their bag and they find the sack of money. And once they find the sack of money, it says fear came over them. They were trembling. And this is the first time the brothers ever mention God. Fear comes over them and they are trembling and they are like, what is this that God has done? You can live life and be and say ignorance is bliss. You can live life saying, I'm just going to do it the way I want. Who's going to do whatever? I'm just going to live the way I want. And then something happens again and again and again. And then you're thinking, it's too coincidental to be a coincidence. This can't be just a coincidence. And the brothers finally realize so what is it? What is this that God is doing? And they were trembling because they were fearful. Because now if the money's in the bag, even one, they can't go back and say, oh, by the way, I think there was a mistake and you return all of our money back here because they can't return. Joseph said, I swear by the life of Pharaoh, if you come without your brother, you're going to get it. I'm going to kill you. So they can't even go back. But if they go back, even with the brother, now he could be like, you stole our money, didn't you? I keep a good account, and here's my record. You didn't pay. Now you better pay with interest or with your lives. So now they find themselves in a situation where nothing they can do would be good. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of situation where any single move that you could calculate to the best of your ability, and this is true for me, is whenever I'm in a situation, I start thinking about the possibilities. There's option A, there's option B, there's option C. If, you know, let's say, let's say no one comes to the scattered conference, then Pastor Eugene is going to be upset and disappointed with his leaders. <laughs> and there's option B and C. And then imagine you find yourself in a place where there are no more options. Any option that you can think of is death. It's done. It's over. And so they were just trembling. They just couldn't do anything anymore. So what other choices did they have? They just decided to go back. And they go back to their father. And when they go to the father, they tell him this story. And remember, this is the second story that they're telling Jacob as a group of brothers. The first story that they told was about Joseph. So Jacob, over the years must have been thinking about the story over and over again, how his favorite son got killed 
when he went to visit his brothers. You can kind of think, kind of see his mind swirling and thinking. Imagine thinking about your favorite child's death for 13 years and swirling, swirling around in your head. Thinking about every single word that your sons told you. And so this is what uh, his sons say. He goes, this is, he was mean to us, so we told him we're honest. We've never been spies. We're 12, and he's with our father. And uh, the youngest is with our father in Canaan. And then the man of the, the Lord of the land said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. It's like a, a very soft way of putting it. So they even soften what they're saying. Because Joseph, Joseph didn't say that. He didn't say, leave one of your brothers with me and make sure you have enough food, guys. Good job. And then I'll see you soon. It's almost like a, a nice farewell. See you soon to be continued. But that's not actually what happened. And then Jacob hears it. And you can see Jacob is listening to this story. And as he's listening to the story, again, letting it kind of sit in his head, they started emptying their sacks of grain. And behold, every single sack of grain, the money is there again. Now, if there's a little distrust, you're just, when someone tells you a story and there's a little distrust, you're like, okay, 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 thanks for, thanks for telling me. And then all of a sudden, the money appears again? Because 13 years ago, Jacob must have remembered where did they get these 20 pieces of silver? How come all of a sudden my sons have this extra cash? And now the sack is open and the money is still there. And his other son, Simeon, is missing. And they're asking for my son, Benjamin, now. Jacob goes to them. You have bereaved me of my children. He doesn't go, I have been bereaved. He doesn't go, I lost my children because of these un un unfortunate circumstances. He goes, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. Now you want to take Benjamin? And then he says this last line, woe is me. Then Reuben comes back into the picture. Some of your favorite again. And Reuben says to his father, kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Now that's kind of, I, I just kind of just love this character. He's that character in the Korean drama that you love to hate because he's the guy that's going to always mess things up. But he's the guy that always thinks about himself. Reuben goes up to Jacob and goes, kill my two sons. Kill someone else, actually. He's saying, kill someone else. Don't, don't touch me. I, I won't put my stuff on the line, but kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back. And Jacob, of course, is like, no, never. My son will not go down with you. His brother's dead. Only one is left. And Jacob is talking as if he only has two sons when he has 12. But he goes, I lost my son. One son, and only one is left. If harm should happen to him, then my gray hairs will go down to hell. It's just, I can't even bear 
to think about it because even now it's just so painful. And this is how chapter 43 ends. God is mentioned in the chapter. But sometimes we see a whole picture of our lives and we see it play out. And sometimes it does look like a K-drama. Some of you are actually Rubens. I'm just kidding. You guys are. Uh, some of us, we feel like there are Rubens in our life. Some of us, we feel like there's people that are mean to us in our life. And we see these things play out in our lives and like, why is this happening? But in the midst of the storytelling, there are things that we need to be aware of that should pop up out at you. And one of the ways I have repeatedly said on how to read a passage or a chapter is through the burger lens. And if you look at the top and the bottom, it's mentioning one thing about Jacob. And it's about how Jacob still hasn't let go of his favoritism. Favoritism. First of all, it was for Joseph. And then when Joseph was gone, he still needed to have it, so he put it to Benjamin. And you have to see, you could almost relate and kind of sympathize. Jacob was also a man who was, who was kind of, uh, who kind of suffered under favoritism because he wasn't the favorite. His father Isaac favored Esau, his older twin brother, over him. And yet, at the same time, you can think, my parents did this. I will never do this. I will never live the way my parents lived. And I hear that a lot, especially from young people. I will never do the things my parents did. In fact, I'm going to do it this way. But when you look at the big picture, not much has changed. Not much has changed from us and our parents. Not much has changed in the 13 years that spanned. Not much has changed, you would see, for Jacob. But you see, God doesn't leave him alone. And even in the thick and the hurt and the distress of the situation, you see God is becoming ever more present and viewable to every single person in the story. Not only Joseph, not only his brothers, but now you will see with Jacob as well. There is an undergirding kind of theme going through this chapter, and that is idolatry. Whether we know it or not, and we could be like, oh, we could celebrate Easter. Easter was awesome. Now we know that we are secure in Christ. But when we even think about it further, now that we know in Christ, what God does, he takes us on this journey. And in this journey starts exposing things to us. Exposing things that we never knew or realized, but they were always there, and they were destructive, and they were not just disheartening, but they were evil. And so, this is what's happening with Jacob. Henry Nguyen, in his book, The Wounded Healer, tells of this ancient story uh, from India. It says, four royal brothers decided each to master a special ability. Time went by and the brothers met to reveal what they had learned. The first goes, I have mastered a science by which I can take but a bone of some creature and create flesh that goes with it. 
I, said the second, know how to grow that creature's skin and hair if there's flesh on its bone. The third said, I am able to create its limbs if I have flesh, skin, and hair. And I, concluded the fourth, know how to give life to that creature if its form is complete. Thereupon the brothers went into the jungle to find a bone that they could demonstrate their specialties. As fate would have it, the bone that they found was a lion's. One added flesh to the bone, the second grew hide and hair, the third completed it with matching limbs, and the fourth gave the lion life. Shaking its mane, the ferocious beast arose and jumped on his creators, and he killed them all and vanished contently into the jungle. We too have a capacity to create things that devour us. Our goals and our dreams can consume us. Our possessions and our property, they can destroy us. Unless we follow and remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, that we seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, and then we allow him to work in our lives and give us new life. You know, as far as idols are concerned, idols don't weaken with age. That is never the case. A lot of us, we think, as I get older, I'll get better. As I get older, I'll be less angry. Don't worry, honey. If anybody says that to you, don't believe them because it just doesn't happen that way. As you get older, idols don't weaken. If left unchecked, idols actually get stronger. Uh, There's this one book I read that was fascinating by Philip Yancey who uh, interviewed this 60-year-old man about lust. 60-year-old man about lust. And he shared that his lust, as he got older, didn't subside or lessen in any way. In fact, it was enraged and it was growing. It's just that his body couldn't act out on it because he was getting older. But inside, his spirit was on fire with lust. We think that because we're young, oh, it's okay because you're young. Just get it out of your system. I'm sure we've heard things like that. But idols don't subside. This actually played out here in our society. There's a survey that looks at the general population as well as subgroups based on gender, race, and even religious subgroups. Uh, There's this um, uh, survey that was commissioned by Deseret News. And this was an answer to the question, how often, if ever, would you say the following activities would be cheating on a spouse or partner? How often, if ever, would you say the following activities would be cheating on your spouse or partner? And this, the results I'm going to share with you are for evangelicals. These are people that say they are born-again Christians. Following an ex on social media, 23% said that would be cheating. Watching pornography without your partner, 31%. Going to a strip club without your partner. Out of all the evangelicals, 37% said that would be cheating. Going out to dinner with someone that you are attracted to, 53%. Sending flirtatious messages to someone besides your partner, 58%. Being emotionally involved with someone beside your partner, 
how many considered it cheating? 67%. Actively maintaining an online dating profile? 68%. 68% is saying that's cheating. That means there are 32% of people that's like, mm, not yet. Sending, it gets, it gets worse. Sending sexually explicit messages to someone other than your partner. Yeah, that's right, I said it. Sending sexually explicit messages to someone other than your partner, 75%. Romantically kissing someone other than your partner, 78%. Having a one-night stand with someone other than your partner, 77%. Now we're in the grounds of, okay, I'm going to cheat. How many of you saying, how many of you think it's cheating? Like, oh, maybe not. It's like, it's literally cheating. But 77% say, okay, I guess it is. And the others aren't. Having regular sexual relations with someone other than your partner, 82%. On the average, of course, evangelicals were more conservative. But this behavior is astonishing that we would think that this is not cheating. The survey finally also asked, would you be more likely or less likely to support a candidate for president who had an extramarital affair in the past, or wouldn't this matter to you, or would this not matter to you? 43% of evangelicals said that an affair would negatively affect their vote. We live in a society where we see we might not bow down to wooden idols. We, not, we might not be like, oh, there's this statue here. Everybody make sure before you come into the sanctuary, you give a little nod, a salute. We say a little pledge, and then you take your seat. We, don't, we might not do that. But what we do do is we elevate these things. And now we're in a place where even the church can't figure out what is actually right or wrong. Isn't it all gray guys? All we need is Jesus people. And then we see all these things happening. When you see broken relationships on the rise, we see betrayal on the rise. And we literally see it happen and play out in our lives. It's interesting that Jacob is an example for us to see in this chapter with idolatry because many people admit to this as well. But one of the final idols that people let go of, one of the final idols that people let go of, people could say, oh, Jesus, you want my money, you got my money. Oh, Jesus, you want my time, you got my time. Oh, Jesus, you want my talents, you got my talents. Jesus, you want my child? No, that's where I draw the line. One of the final idols that people let go of are children. In his bestseller, The Reason for God, Keller, Tim Keller, he develops this line of thought and he shows what kind of damage having idols causes. And when you have an idol, what you are saying is, I'm going to center my life around these things. And he says, if you center your life on identity on your spouse, or you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner, you will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling the other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. If you center your life and identity on your family and children, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. At worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. 
If you center your life and identity on your work and career, you will be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you will lose family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, develop deep depression. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You will be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. If you center your life and identity on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you will be constantly overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. You will fear confronting others and therefore will be a useless friend. If you center your life and identity on a, quote, noble cause, unquote, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies without them. You have no purpose. And finally, if you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will, if you are living up to your moral standards, be proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. The question is, what is at the center of your life? What you put at the center of your life is so key and important. What I find fascinating is that now that we learn more about science, I can't help but to think, wow, that really points to the biblical truth. It points to God and what he's always been saying. Even if we look at the center, literal center of our galaxy, what is in it? In fact, of, of almost major, every single major galaxy at the center of these galaxies, what's in there? The supermassive black hole. Black hole is in the middle of our galaxy. What should be at the center? What should be at the center of our lives? What should be at your center? And if it's not, isn't it a gaping black hole where it will never be satisfied? It will always suck the life out of you and bring forth destruction. What should be at the center? Who should be at the center? Because anything else at the center is death. Because when you have a center, this is what you are saying. I can't see anything else. When you say things like, oh baby, you're the center of my universe. You are saying to that person, you're all that I see. He or she is all that you can think about. Your life revolves around that person. Ultimately, your life revolves around death. And there's no way around the black hole. But here's the amazing part. When we were blind, and we were stubborn, and we were stupid, we're captivated by our own idols, we're devastated by our sins, that's when Jesus came to us. That's when Jesus came to us. Not when we had everything together. His death and resurrection meant that we, if we believe in his name, we get a new center. We are born again. Jesus offers us his life instead of death. You know what his life and death did? It satiates that black hole. The impossible thing to satiate, the impossible thing to fill gets filled and thus destroying it. That's why we get a new life when we get Christ in the center. 
This is what God calls us to today as well. God is saying, I am your center. I am your center. And sometimes we may be wondering why all these things are happening to me. But just like Jacob, just like his sons, God may be taking you on a journey. And let me encourage you, that journey is a journey to God. And that journey is a journey to life. Let God be the center of your lives. Let's pray. And Lord, as we pray, we start with this and we start with confession. We start by praying that we have not lived the life where you were our center. And so we repent of all that is not you that we have put at the center of our lives. We repent, meaning we want to turn back from all these other things and we want to turn to you. Lord, won't you be with your people right now? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come into every single person that is crying out to you. And Lord, won't you fill their needs? Let's take this time to pray and offer up our own lives to the Lord with our own words, asking the Lord to come and be our center. Let's pray.